back on the Fan Morning Show. Justin Ailish, Sportsnet 590 Fan. Raptors hosting the Nuggets tonight at 7.30. Maybe you send in your wake and rake pick from that game. They're back at home for, I believe, seven of the next eight or eight of the next nine, whatever, a long time here for some home cooking. That can be your wake and rake hit, which we did hit last night. By the way, might have been a push if you got the seven or the six and a half, depends on where you got, but Leafs, Sabres, seven goals scored. Whether it's a full or a partial. Not bad, though. Not bad at all. That's two in a row as well. It's a good start to our week. Let's keep it rolling. We got Ian Tellick, analytics expert and hockey analyst, joining us this morning. How's it going, Ian? I'm not too bad. How are you guys holding up? Oh, we're doing well. We're uh, unpacking last night and I guess the last little stretch of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we keep coming to the same question about the 11 and 7. Now, it's been a topic of conversation, I think, understandably so. After the trade deadline, you're trying to work people in, you're trying to start chemistry, but maybe a little bit more difficult to get chemistry when you're moving around the lineup. Um, where do you fall in the 11 and 7 um, d- discussion? So I remember our mutual buddy, J.D. Bunkus, wanted to talk to me about this. This was years ago. This would have been around 2018 or 2019. He said, hey, Ian, I saw you write about 11 and 7. What's the deal with it? Why do people like it? And I've tried to rationalize it as best I can. It works really well when you have forwards who need more minutes and uh, defensemen who are more specialized in their roles. So for Toronto, if we use last night as an example, Matthews, Marner, Nylander all had 22-plus minutes of ice time, and their defenseman minutes and leader last night was Morgan Riley with just a hair over 18. So what you're doing there essentially is – you have to put a forward on the fourth line or on the third line, basically rotate in one of your best players. And the lines do get a little bit jumbled sometimes. And on defense, I know the lower-end defensemen in the NHL hate 11-7 and seven because it eats into their minutes. And like I just mentioned, everyone's kind of taking a hit in that department. It's not just Riley. It's Brody. It's Hall. It's McCabe. It's specifically someone like Eric Gustafson, who's a true specialist in the sense of the world. He's... He's essentially a Marc-Andre Bergeron where you trust him offensively and the second you're on the defensive side of the puck, you want him off the ice. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. I know NHL coaches don't love the idea of change, but I've always wondered why as a sport in hockey, we've stuck to the three forwards, two defense, one goalie, four forward lines, three D pairs, and it's been that way forever. Personally, I like seeing more change in the sport of hockey, and I think for a roster that has a lot more high-end forward talent that you want to get more minutes to, and maybe some defensemen that you're not trusting as much. I like the idea behind it, and in Toronto, considering their moves at the deadline, they have eight or nine NHL defensemen, and I'm not sure if they have 12 quality NHL forwards going into a playoff series right now. So, personally, I like the 11-7 setup. We'll see how it goes down the stretch here, but I've always been an advocate of it because I think it signifies change in the sport of hockey, and I think when you have the forwards to give 20-plus minutes to a night, I think it helps optimize your lineup. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a change for the cha- uh, sake of change guy. Uh, and not that this is happening. I've actually banged the drum for 11-7 before. I think it makes sense for a lot of reasons. I think the specialist on the blue line, that makes a lot of sense. But I guess what I do disagree with you there is like the fact that they don't have enough forwards. I mean, when Ryan O'Reilly comes back, I- I'm not sure how they even entertain 11-7 because it feels like they just have enough impact and enough guys that they want to be focusing on and underscoring and giving an opportunity to help this team. Uh, I think it makes perfect sense on the back end because, yeah, Luke Shen and Eric Gustafson are perfect guys to play in an 11-7 rotation because there are areas you trust them and areas you don't trust them. But when I'm looking at what they should be prioritizing now, which is getting ready for the postseason – 
Ryan O'Reilly comes back, I can't imagine a world where they only choose uh, 11 forwards because I, I think there's enough utility with the 12 that they would be considering uh, with their number one day one game one lineup. Yeah, that's a fair point, and especially when you think of someone like Matthew Nyes, who's going to be getting a good look to see if he can provide some offense. I'd imagine they try him in an offensive sheltered role, whether it's with someone like Camp, someone like Yarncroft, to see if he can provide some offense. I don't think the two-way play will fully be there yet. I'm not sure if, uh, if we look at his point production and historically players at his age who try to enter the NHL and make an impact right away, the odds aren't on his, in his favor. And just because something is improbable doesn't mean it's impossible. So there's a chance that Matthew Nyes comes into the lineup and makes an impact. But it reminds me a lot of when they tried to pigeonhole Nick Robertson into the playoff lineup, and he just wasn't really ready to contribute at five-on-five five at the NHL level. So at the end of the day, we're looking at the Leafs lines in the playoff series. Let's, let's say everyone's healthy for fun. So you have Ryan O'Reilly in the top six. I'm assuming Michael Bunting goes back up into the top six. I know right now he's probably playing his worst hockey as a Toronto Maple Leaf. The inner nerd in me wants to hope on some regression to the mean, and he goes back to playing well with Matthews and Nylander. But uh, then you go down to the bottom six. You've got the camp line defensively. Zach Aston Reese is someone you trust defensively. Achari. You're right. They do have some bodies in the bottom six. I think the biggest concern on my end is the lack of goal scoring. And I know if you look at the Leafs roster additions, not just this season, but over the past few seasons, especially in the bottom half of the lineup, it tends to be defensive specialists. I mean, Luke Shen is someone who, I'm not sure if I'd, I'd necessarily put him in that department, but you look at Zach Astoris, you look at Noel Lachari, you look at the signing of David Camps, even last year when they traded for Nick Bellino, Mark Giordano, Jake McCabe, what do these guys all have in common? They're excellent defensive players. And if you look at Toronto's metrics over the last couple of seasons, they've been a top five defensive team. It's not something that really fits the narrative in Leafsland. We think of them as a high-octane offensive team who struggles defensively. That's not who they've been over the last couple of years. They've been an excellent defensive team. But the lack of goal scoring in their bottom six, I'm really worried it might be the reason that they don't advance again. We'll see hockey's a random sport at the end of the day. Very hard to break these things, especially when you have two equally matched teams in a first-round series. But... I'm worried about the lack of goal scoring in Toronto's bottom six, I would say, because the top six, you, you can depend on them pretty easily for goals. But, man, I don't know. I, I get what they're doing here with the defensive specialists in the bottom six, but you're really prioritizing defense over offense forward, and I'm not sure if that's ideal. Yeah, I think uh, the hope should be that Ryan O'Reilly slides in into that three-hole and plays a Lafferty yarn croak, and maybe there's a little bit of offensive pop there in addition to logging uh, major defensive minutes. Uh, I think where we saw maybe the negatives with 11-7 and seven last night was through Lafferty and yarn croak, who were, we were joking about how they, they play with the blank space on the lineup chart that the Maple Leafs uh, revealed before the game because they were pretty solidified in that fourth line and the guys who were floating were Yarn Croak and Lafferty. If you look at their numbers last night, absolutely dreadful. They got absolutely caved in. They weren't able to produce a shot attempt together while they were on the ice. And I feel like that throws you out of your rhythm. Ailish, uh, who of course has played professional hockey and has way more experience than both of us, uh, indicated that, yeah, it can kind of get you into a position where you're you're lost out there and you're without purpose. Is that what you saw maybe with Lafferty uh, and Yarn Croak last night where it's just like, hey, you know, there's some confusion of what position you're playing, who you're playing with, and maybe, you know, that's one of the things you're bracing against or, or trying to avoid when the playoffs roll around, having a couple key forwards really out there without purpose. For someone who you feel really comfortable with, I know Yarn Croak is a pure shooter. If you look at his results throughout his entire career. 
he's been a mediocre play driver, not the best defensive player in the world, not the greatest passer in the world, but he's always been an above average finisher at the NHL level, which means he's one of the top 100 or 150 shooters in the world. You want someone who can get him the puck. That's not Sam Lafferty. I, I don't want to be too mean to the guy, but he, he's pretty much a north-south skater. He's fast. He can dump the puck in, go get it, and wreak havoc on the forecheck, but I don't think he has the puck skills to complement a player like uh, like Tali Arncroft. When I was talking about the 11-7 and seven and do the Leafs have enough forwards, I know that they traded for Sam Lafferty, hoping he could be a, a playoff-ready, get in on the forecheck, hit someone, and, and provide value that way. But personally, I'm not a huge fan of Sam Lafferty. I know he's, his goal scoring is up this year, but I, I don't know how much of his shooting percentage inflated. I'm sure he'll get a, a lot of leash here because they did give up assets to acquire him, even though McCabe was the, the blue chip in that deal. I mean, in an ideal world, I'd probably have Lafferty on a fourth line. And in a perfect world, I'd like to have 12 better forwards than him in a playoff lineup. But I'm not sure if the Leafs are there. So it is, is what it is at this point. I definitely want to get to McCabe in a minute. But with Shen's pending return after uh, the birth of his his uh, daughter, I believe he had a daughter, right? Uh, child. Definitely a child. Definitely a child. He did have a child. Congrats um, on the child. Yes, he definitely had a child. Now, um, he should be back, I, I'd assume, Wednesday, maybe um, against the uh, abs. But where do you think he'll be best utilized in this lineup? And previously, when he was traded to the Maple Leafs, we talked to Jason Bukla, who, who knows his he knows his stuff, and he said that Shen was playing some of the best hockey of his career as of late. Is that what you're seeing as well and how the Maple Leafs can keep to, uh, keep exploiting that? So he played well with Quinn Hughes in a big sample of minutes. So, I mean, that's a positive indicator. But if we look at Luke Chen's career, let's say over the last four or five years, he tends to be a drag on the partner that he plays with. I know that he's trusted a bit more defensively. He leads the league in hits this year at the list with guys like Matt Martin, Tanner Janot, and guys that NHL GMs just love. Uh, my biggest fear is that because he played well with Quinn Hughes, who's an elite puck mover, that they're going to play him with Morgan Riley, very similar to what they did with Labushkin last year. And I understand the yin-yang to the pairing. You want to have a dynamic puck mover and someone who can defend really well. But Luke Shen's foot speed doesn't defend the rush that well, as, as well as someone like Brody or McCabe. And I know the idea of pairing Brody and McCabe together as a shutdown pairing. I see the value in that. That sounds awesome, especially in the last 10 minutes when you're defending a lead. But what it does to the rest of the pairings is, unless you're going to go Riley Liljegren, which they haven't really been willing to do this much this season, it seems like Shen's going to pencil in there next to Riley. And personally, I don't love the idea of that because you know Morgan Riley's going to play a lot of minutes in a close playoff game. So on the ice with Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner, Tavares, O'Reilly, all your star players, you're going to have Luke Shen passing them the puck. I don't love that idea. But I also think it's probably the best spot for him because where else do you play him? In a sheltered third pair role and then throw him out in some PK situations or late game when you're holding a one-goal lead? Uh, I think in in a perfect world, he's probably your seventh or eighth defenseman going into a playoff series, and inevitably someone is going to get hurt in round one. I think when you look at the stats, you lose about one key roster player per round in the playoffs. So if you're going to make a deep run, you're going to need to be eight or nine deep on the blue line. So I like the addition for depth, but I don't love the idea of him playing on a top pair role with Riley, just because I don't think that's how you want to properly allocate the minutes. How about a sheltered third pair role with Morgan Riley? This has been my, this has been my argument here because Morgan Riley's not playing like a number one defenseman. So let's treat him like new Sandine. 
let's try to accentuate his strengths, which is, you know, connect him to a five-man unit that can attack and a little safety valve in, in Luke Shen and hope that he can just win more manageable minutes in the postseason. Do you see that as an option, or is it like, oh, it's Morgan Riley and he makes $7.5 million. He has to play against the top competition on the other side. See, I, I could see that, but I'm imagining we're going 12-6 here with six on the blue line. So that would mean that one of Justin Hall or Timothy Lilligren's coming out of the lineup for Luke Shen. And, I mean, I know Justin Hall gets a lot of hate in this market. I'm not sure if we want to turn this into a Justin Hall segment, but I still think there's value there defensively and how he defends the rush to make a first pass. I love what Timothy Lilligren's done this year, and I'm kind of terrified that he's going to be the odd man looking into the roster come playoff time. So... I see what you're saying about Morgan Riley in a more sheltered role, and I do agree with that. I think that's a very smart way to use him because defensively, even at his apex, he's been a defensive liability, but he's an offensive juggernaut who can get you 60-plus points. And Every time him and Mitch Marner are on the ice together on the power play, over the last few years, Toronto's had an excellent uh, efficiency, scoring chances, goals on the power play. I've tried to argue that Morgan Riley's a bit overrated on the power play, but when I look at the statistics and I try to look at all the data, I'm wrong. Morgan Riley is an elite power play performer, and I think I just need to come to grips with that. But if you're playing McCabe and Brody in a shutdown role, which seems to be working really well, you go with Giordano and either Lilligren or Hall on that second pair, which can handle some tougher minutes than you realize. Giordano, even though he's played every game this season, he can handle some tougher minutes against top six competition. And then you play Riley in a more sheltered role and let him go nuts offensively every ozone draw, get him out there in dynamic situations against the other team's bottom six. I like the idea there. I really do like the idea. I'm just worried that after the trade deadline, the Leafs are not optimizing their lineup by playing worse players over better players in the lineup. And I think that's my biggest fear going into the postseason. A new player to the Maple Leafs at that trade deadline was um, McCabe, who I think we're excited because he plays a different level of defense, a different style. He's a defenseman, as Justin put it, and it's a perfect way to put it. He plays good D. Um, analytically, is the eye test and the numbers matching up in terms of what he's being able to provide to the Maple Leafs back end? Yeah, one of the toughest parts of statistically evaluating a defenseman on a terrible team is that they're naturally going to have bad numbers. I remember you asked me a while back about Jacob Chikrin having one of the worst plus minuses in hockey. And it's tough when you're a minutes leader on a terrible team, you're going to give up a lot of goals against. You're going to give up a lot of shots and scoring chances against. And it's not going to be your fault. It's going to be because of your surroundings, your environment. And if you look at Jake McCabe's environment in Chicago, it's one of the worst environments to play in. And he played in tough minutes and broke even in goal differential. That's extremely hard to do. And throughout his career, he's always played tough minutes. He's always played against top six competition for the most part. And if he doesn't break even, he's slightly above break even and because of those defensive metrics where he's not allowing anything through the middle of the ice, does a great job protecting the slot. For a guy who's pretty physical and we think of the older defenseman, he's pretty mobile. And that's why he's able to defend the rush really well. I think when you look at the best defensemen in the NHL over the last, let's say, four or five years, and you look at the ones who are defending against the rush the best, He's up there. He's up there with some of the big names. Uh, TJ Brody's a bit better, but you pair those two together, and all of a sudden, you're Tampa Bay trying to break them down off of a turnover. And it's hard to gain the blue line against Jake McCabe. It's hard to gain the blue line against TJ Brody. And I think that's the real modern way of defending is killing a chance before it has a chance to develop, killing a play early in the neutral zone, killing a play at center ice. Because once a player with a high-end skill is building up a ton of speed coming through the neutral zone – you're already dead. When Connor McDavid built up a head of steam, there's not much you can do. But if you can 
break up that play early in the in the neutral zone, which is something that Jake McCabe's excellent at, then you stand a good chance of holding on to the puck and outplaying your competition in your minutes. So I'm a big fan of the Jake McCabe acquisition. I don't love that it came at the expense of Rasmus Sandin. I think there was a way to keep him on the roster still and find a way to, to get some kind of value out of him. But I do love the addition of Jake McCabe, especially at that $2 million price tag. That's going to be a bargain over the next couple of years. I think a lot of NHL teams would want that contract right now. Yeah, it looks really, 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 really good for the next couple of years. Uh, Jake McCabe's had a great start. Uh, Mitch Marner. Uh, I feel like the first domino when it comes to lineup configuration is Mitch Marner because the who is Mitch Marner going to play with uh, debate is really the most important thing, I guess, when setting the lines because, uh, as you mentioned, it's going to come down to those four guys in the top two lines producing enough offense to get you through. So based on the numbers, based on your eye test, who do you think Mitch Marner should play with when the games matter the most? So it's hard for me to not fall in love with that Tavares, O'Reilly, Marner game. Maybe it's just the recency bias of when I saw it first game, it it just clicked and everything felt right. And O'Reilly low in the defensive zone, giving Tavares a chance to leak up front a little bit to create off the rush with Marner. But then I've also seen the Leafs sometimes off of an icing throw Matthews, Marner, Nylander out there together. So I don't know if there's going to be necessarily one spot you stick with him for an entire playoff series because things can change over a seven-game series. Maybe after two games, things aren't going so well and you want to switch Marner and Nylander, which they've been able to do over the years. And it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, you still have these four-star players offensively. In, In hockey, we've seen it whenever you put a Hockey Canada roster together, these World Juniors rosters together. Star players can play with other star players, and they find a way to connect on high-level plays and put the puck in the back of the net. So at the end of the day, I don't really think it matters who Marner's playing with as long as he's getting his 20-plus minutes a night because what he's doing, not just offensively and as a playmaker, which we all know, we've seen him play for years now. We know he's one of the best passers in the world. But I love his defense. I mean, he might be a buck seventy soaking wet, but he's so good at picking off passes and finding a way to create offense off of turnovers. So you don't think of Mitch Marner as one of the best four checkers in the NHL. And you think of great four checkers, you think of someone just terrifying, you know, Tom Wilson coming in and blasting someone through the board. But Mitch Marner's so good at getting himself into the right position, forcing a decision one way, beating the player to that spot, and then intercepting a puck and all of a sudden it's Mitch Marner with lots of open space in the offensive zone. That's a terrifying proposition. So I love what he's doing right now. He might be playing the best hockey of his life. And it's maybe not Selkie level defense, but top 15, top 20 Selkie level defense, along with 95 to 100 point offense. There aren't too many players in the league who provide that type of value. And the Leafs are really happy to have a guy like Marner doing it on a nightly basis. I was going to ask you about that Selkie candidacy um, because, I mean, specifically as a winger, sometimes it's more difficult to evaluate that. You have his defense in the top 15 or 20, as you mentioned, but with the offense, you know, who who is it that, I mean, we know the guys that are up in the, the top of those conversations, but is there a way that Mitch Marner gets in that conversation and on the ballot at least, heads to Vegas for the awards? Is there something he can do down the stretch or um, is it still a little bit of a, a growth pattern for him in the future? I was going to joke that there's this guy named Patrice Bergeron. It's going to yeah. be really hard to get in I know, conversation. I was like, well, who, who's going to beat him? And I'm like, yeah, we know it's Bergeron. <laughs> yeah, it's, he's the best defensive player maybe ever. That's a tough yeah. one. But, yeah, I know I've always agreed that wingers never get a fair shake in these Selkie votes. And I don't know, Marion Hossa never won one. Mark Stone should have been higher in a lot of Selkie ballots over the years. And when you look at what wingers do in terms of defensive play, a lot of people say, oh, they're not low in the defensive zone. They're not impacting the game as much. They're able to freewheel and kind of cheat 
it, on defensive plays. I think of defense as when you don't have the puck, that's what defense is. And is forechecking a form of defense? Because I'm not sure if everyone would consider it that. But I think Mitch Martin is one of the most effective forecheckers in hockey. I think he's one of the most effective penalty killers in hockey. I think over the last couple of years, he's gone up against some of the toughest competition in hockey and won those minutes. Now, he's playing alongside some other very good players, whether it's Matthews or Tavares. But if we try to isolate his independent impact on the game, his defensive metrics do come out as elite. And last year, he should have been in the selfie conversation, at least in the maybe top 10-ish range, if you look at some of the numbers by someone like Dom Lischian. I know he had Marner consistently in the top 10 throughout the year. I think the Matthews line has fallen off a bit this year, especially when Matthews and Marner play together. They're not at those... Let's say they're not controlling 60 plus percent of play, whereas last year they were closer to 65 ish throughout the entire year. So you do need to put up those kind of numbers to be in that legitimate selkie conversation. But I'd love to see someone like Marner eventually get a top five finish just because there aren't enough wingers in these conversations. And I do think that that's a big part of playing hockey is not just the center who only plays defense. I think wingers can contribute without the puck as well. The only award really with intrigue, or at least major award with intrigue, I think is the Norris Trophy and Eric Carlson's pursuit of it despite playing for maybe the worst team in the NHL. Uh, has he done enough from a individual profile to win that award despite, you know, what his team has been able to do? So the nerds never love using points. You know, we're more about expected goals and, and all the fun stuff, but... It's just stupid what he's doing this year. I don't know if he's going to break the 100-point barrier. And uh, if you look at some of the metrics, like who has the most slot passes in the NHL? It's a bunch of high-end forwards. This guy's like Mitch Marner. It's it's the best passers in the world. And then Eric Carlson always sneaks into these lists. It's all the top offensive forwards in the league. And then Eric Carlson. How about zone entries? How about uh, completed passes in the offensive zone? How about any metric we can try to come up with that would tell us this is a skilled player who made a skilled play in the offensive zone. And Eric Carlson's near the top of those lists among all positions. And if you look at defensemen, he's way ahead of the next guy. So as much as I don't love using points as a be-all, end-all, because I think Eric Gustafson leads the Leafs in points this year in defensemen, and you wouldn't say that he's their best defenseman. I do think that what Eric Carlson's doing this year is just ludicrous offensively. And Even though someone like Adam Fox might deserve to be in the conversation a little bit more because – He's better on the defensive side of the puck. When you put up 90-plus points, when you're in that 100-point territory, uh, that's that's just a stupid amount of value, and I would vote for Carlson if I had a vote right now. Uh, that's Ian Tullock, analytics expert and hockey analyst. We appreciate you coming on this morning and uh, breaking it down, giving us the uh, the scoop on 11-7 and what it might mean for the Maple Leafs. Hey, I appreciate it, guys. You have a good morning. Appreciate it, too. Uh, that's Ian Tullock, analytics expert and hockey analyst. Lots of good stuff there. And it's time for something to chew on, brought to you by Great Canadian Meats and maybe my puppy for the next six months chewing on stuff. Yum, yum, yum. Just just the things he's allowed to chew on for now, I'll right? I'll try my best. Um, I wanted to play this one because we're going to talk to Will Liu at 8 o'clock, and I'm going to get his opinion on this. But uh, NBA writer Howard Beck was a uh, guest on the recent edition of The Low Post podcast and Dartmouth alumni there. Um Talking about the Raptors no and their ongoing quest to secure a play-in spot, he referenced a conversation that he had with an NBA exec shortly after the trade deadline who explained why Toronto doubled down instead of selling off their assets. But the twist here is that Howard Beck believes that some of the Raptors players might not have that same belief in the front office. 
There was an interesting observation that somebody made or just a, a comment somebody made to me when I at the trade deadline when the Raptors traded for Pirtle and everybody had been talking about like the parts that they were going to sell off, right? They're going to be sellers, not buyers, everything else. And I said to somebody uh, with another team, what do you make of them going the other direction? And you mentioned earlier the stat, they're six and five with Jakob Pirtle. And the comment this this uh, official with another team made was Raptors front office still totally believes in this group. And, the, and acquiring Jakob Pertl was a vote of confidence in what they think this group can still do, but the players don't. <laughs> That's tough. And we talked about the lack of um, buy-in maybe it looked at times, some frustration players obviously, you know, seeing like they had some down periods where they didn't look like they were super invested or wanted to play here. I wonder how much of that is the frustration of the direction that you're going. Has Nick Nurse lost the room? We've had all these conversations. So if I were back saying that maybe the players don't have the same belief in the direction that they're going or at least maybe a lack of clarity, that's a real tough thing to overcome. Yeah, I mean, that's an opinion, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe yeah. like someone, you know, I don't know how much that's broken telephone, but I also don't blame the players, no. right? Like, you know. You know we don't have it. You know we're not the Boston Celtics or the Milwaukee Bucks. We're not even the 76ers. Like, we're not there. And we're adding? Like, I I don't know. I guess we'll kind of, like, band together and try to play well. But if you hit that wall again that you're experiencing and have been experiencing all season, they know they're not good enough. I don't, I don't think that's a secret to any of them. I think it looks bad on management for thinking they might be good enough. Or worse. <laughs> Well, nonetheless, realities are realities. We'll ask Will Lou about that. He's around the team all the time. That's one thing. Howard Beck is not around the team all the time. So maybe Will has a little bit of a better pulse in terms of like. But Howard just cars. relaying information he got from someone For else. For sure. For sure. Oh, I think it's certainly something to chew on. Filled you right up. It really did. We'll talk about I'm it. gnawing on it right now. <laughs> We'll talk about it more with Will Lou at 8 o'clock. But on the other side of the break, we're going to chat with Ross Tucker. Get him back in the fold. Um, host the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. As you know, Westwood One, CBS Sports analyst, former offensive lineman. What's going on with the free agency period here? The next two days, we're going to see some signings or some potential signings until they're made official on Wednesday. And why is the Lamar Jackson conversation gone quiet? That's next with Ross Tucker. Big opinions and in-depth conversations covering the Leafs, Jays, Raptors, and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're all about the reunions here, at least in the NFL world. Mm. We had Charles Davis last week, and now we got our buddy Ross Tucker, former offensive lineman, host of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, of course, a Westwood One analyst. What's going on, Ross? It's been a while. Yeah, I mean, I guess not that long. It's probably been, what, a month? It's funny. It feels like, to me, maybe just because I've been doing some fun stuff, it feels like the Super Bowl was like two weeks ago, and now we're already into free agency and full throttle in the next year. Oh, it feels like two months for me. Yeah, we've been waiting. We've been missing you. Like, it takes forever. What, what have you been up to? What are all the fun things you're doing? Uh, well, you know, I'm a big skier. So, it's funny, as a former football player, you know, I'm kind of limited orthopedically. I had a back surgery when I played for the Bills. I tore my right MCL twice. So, I can't, um, like, I always thought I'd play basketball. I can't play basketball. I can't jump, period. And then... <laughs> Even golf, like, hurts my back, um, the rotation. But for some reason, 
I can I can ski, and so I'm a big skier. So I went skiing the weekend after the Super Bowl in Montana for a long weekend because it was President's Day weekend, and then this past weekend. Um, I went with my high school buddies from Pennsylvania. We went out to Vail, Colorado. So um, I've gotten two epic ski trips in, which is like combines my favorite things, which is skiing and apres ski. So like those are like my two favorite things. It's incredible. Wow, I can't even get the the boys together for uh, a Saturday night. You're going to <laughs> you're a ski trip with the boys. That's pretty impressive. You know what? It's not easy, and uh, only six of the twelve of us made it. But, you know, you get, I mean, we're 44 when uh, we realize it's not easy. You know, we all went to high school together outside of Philly, and now people live everywhere. But um, you got to do it, man. It's, like, so good for the soul. I, I laughed, like, the entire time. I mean, all we did was tell stories from high school or college or whatever, and it was, it was awesome. Some of the guys couldn't make it, and, you know, everybody's got to have priorities. But um, I was able to be there, and that was my priority. <laughs> Nothing better than telling stories. Okay, let's go to the uh, the, the football news and, of course, uh, what we got here on the cusp of free agency. But we got to start with Lamar Jackson. I don't think we've really asked you about him since, I guess, you know, the nuggets and the breadcrumbs that we've, uh, that we've uh, encountered here in the offseason. When can he start talking? I know that we've got the, uh, we've got the uh, legal tampering period happening right now. But is he even talking? Like, what's going on here with Lamar Jackson? Is anyone interested? Are they... Are they doing a solid to the Ravens that is league-wide? Like, why is this situation turning out the way it seems to be turning out? Yeah, I mean, so technically they're not supposed to be allowed to talk to him until tomorrow because he doesn't have an agent, which is – that's never really made much sense to me. I mean, what's the logic there? So that if you have an agent, they can talk to the teams earlier? How does that, how does that make sense? But, um, you know, I mean, I guess it's – theoretically possible that a team like the commanders might make a move for him, but I don't think so. I'll tell you why. Let's, let's everybody, everybody references it as it relates to Deshaun Watson a year ago, correct? Mm-hmm. And I guess the point I would make about that is if you remember Deshaun Watson told the Browns they were out and he had it down to Atlanta and New Orleans, but then the Browns said, we'll give you a fully guaranteed five-year contract. And miraculously, they were back in. So what we know is that's the only reason why Deshaun Watson went to Cleveland. And he wanted to go to Atlanta or New Orleans, but presumably neither one of them would do that contract, which is why he went to Cleveland. So I don't think it's that crazy that nobody wants to give Lamar Jackson a fully guaranteed five-year deal. I mean, first of all, doesn't seem like it's going that well for uh, the Browns so far. Mm -hmm. Secondly, nobody wanted to do it with Watson. Lamar Jackson's missed games the last couple years, a bunch of them actually. And I also think, guys, that there's this, there's a thought process that, okay, most of them, if not all, don't want to give him a fully guaranteed deal. But even if they gave him something good enough that he would sign it, I think the teams think the Ravens will just match it. I mean, Lamar Jackson's so important to Baltimore and so popular and such a big deal for so many reasons that if some other franchise gives them, I don't know, 200 of it guaranteed, I think the thought process is 
the Ravens would just match it. Now, the interesting part of it is why they all, like, came out of the woodwork to say right away that they're not interested and to not, like, even have a conversation with him. That, I think, is a little bit interesting. But the fact that they might not actually do it is, I would say, understandable. I guess next steps there, well, it does seem like a big game of chicken, everybody waiting around and maybe just the Ravens waiting to, to sign whatever is offered. But let's say that is the case and, and let's say it goes that direction. Do you think that they can, you know, coexist this season? Do you think that there's too much bad blood between the whole negotiation that's gone sour or has gone stale at least um, if Lamar Jackson just returns? You know, I'm sure it bothers him, but it doesn't seem to be like there's a whole lot of, bad blood. I mean, the GM went down to Miami, talked with him about it, and I think that this is was on some level by the Ravens um, like doing Lamar a solid. Like, hey, we'll, we'll let you, you know, if a team's willing to give you that contract that you're looking for, Lamar, then um, why wouldn't a team give you that contract in two first-round picks? Like, like teams like the Browns gave up for Deshaun Watson. So, you know what? I, we, we, you, we know you want what Deshaun got. We totally understand. Go for it. We're going to put you, we're, we're going to put the non-exclusives. If they put the exclusive franchise tag for 45 million, then teams wouldn't even be able to talk with him. Mm-hmm. I almost feel like, Alish, I wonder if this is like an olive branch. We'll put the non-exclusive on. You can talk to every team. See if any other team will give you the contract that we won't. Go for it. Knock yourself out. Because what, what's Lamar going to say then? You know, like at that point, it's like, uh, okay, yeah, you guys were kind of right. Nobody wants to give up two first-round picks to give me that money. Yeah, it kind of comes back with his tail between his legs. Uh, we'll see how this one goes. I mean, maybe Wednesday we get some official news. But it seems like Aaron Rodgers' saga is just set to conclude any day here with the Jets. Um, is that the way you're seeing it as well? And, like, how much of a boost to this Jets franchise and, I guess, fan base if they do um, land Aaron Rodgers? Yeah, I mean, he's going to play for the Jets. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what the delay is. Only he does which seems to be a, a big part of Aaron's life. Um, I don't know how else to describe it, um, but I would be shocked. I mean, the Packers have made it painfully obvious they don't want him back. And the Jets seem to be the only team that really wants him. And he's not giving up $60 million fully guaranteed. So I don't know what the delay is. Uh, I'm sure he'll have some really interesting, enlightening explanation for whenever it happens. But he's going to go there, and I think the Jets uh, probably make the Patriots the worst team in the AFC East. I mean, the Bills are still better than the Patriots. The Dolphins are better than the Patriots. And I think as soon as the Jets get Aaron Rodgers, the Patriots are the worst team in that division, which is kind of crazy to say. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, as much as Aaron Rodgers is a little bit irritating at this point, uh, he makes that team fascinating. Uh, that's really all they were missing was competent quarterbacking play. They got a lot of weapons on offense, a really impressive defense. Uh, so it should be interesting seeing them try and go toe-to-toe with the Buffalo Bills. But where does this leave the Packers? Like, I feel like they're in a pretty good position too because all of a sudden they're going to have a lot of money and they got Jordan Love, who's been waiting in the wings for a little while. I guess we don't really know what we're going to get there. But if, he, if he's a competent quarterback 
and all of a sudden you got money to spend, does this leave the Packers in a good spot? Like how aggressive do you think the, the Packers will be spending that Rogers money if it's indeed off the books? Yeah, you know, I got to look at that actually, just to make sure I understand what the dead money is if if he's traded, you know, because I'm sure he's still on the cap for some money um, because of what they gave him up front a year ago. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this is what the Packers want. It gives them a chance to kind of rebuild a little bit around Jordan Love. He better be good, though, man. I mean, he better be good because. They've had 30-some years in a row of top-five quarterback play, which is just incredible. And honestly, the fact that they've gotten the three Super Bowls and won two is almost, like, disappointing. And I would say definitely disappointing. I mean, have that many years in a row mm-hmm. of that high a level of quarterback play. And Packers fans are ready to move on, and I get it. But if Jordan Love is not the real deal – then they're going to be in a position they haven't been in since the late 80s, you know, like looking for a quarterback. I mean, that's just insane. And maybe they'd regret then spending too much money because they won't be in a position like the Chicago Bears were in, which was, well, they had their quarterback, but they were in a position where they could trade uh, out of the first overall pick to someone else desperate for a quarterback and bring in assets. Uh, The team Aaron owns, Chicago, uh, has been busy making moves. DJ Moore and Tremaine Edmonds in so far, among others. How much more can can Chicago make like a massive leap? Can you go from last in the NFL to potentially making the playoffs next year? Yeah, I think they I, I think they potentially could. You know, I think that they kind of remind me of like Jacksonville this past year, where Jacksonville spent the most in free agency and in large part to try to take advantage of you know, their rookie quarterback, and it kind of worked. I mean, Evan Ingram and all these guys that they got, you know, in Jacksonville, even Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, I mean, the money they spent paid off. And obviously the Bears are hoping the same. I think these all these teams that are being aggressive with quarterbacks on rookie contracts, the Bears, um, the Atlanta Falcons, are, are being aggressive, the Dolphins. I think everyone's kind of realizing, man, you know, if you have a quarterback that's not taking up 20% of your salary cap, that's a big advantage. They all saw what the Eagles did this past year, but they all also see what's going on with the Eagles right now, which is the Eagles have already lost, you know, three starters on defense. They've lost an offensive lineman. I mean, they, the Eagles are realizing that it's, it's not easy to to pay a big-time quarterback like they're going to do with Hurts at some point and still keep the rest of the team together. So Carolina stepped up to make the deal with Chicago, uh, grabbing the first overall pick for more the ninth pick and more draft capital, which really sets up Chicago for success, not just next year but in the, in the future here. But I guess it's worth asking the question on the other side. Like, is C.J. Stroud, who we expect Carolina to pick, number one, that's definitely not, you know, in stone yet, but his price dropped dramatically. If you follow the betting lines, it looks like Stroud is the guy that they at least have uh, circled or earmarked for that position. Is a guy like C.J. Stroud worth all that? Can he be a franchise quarterback? Because you're not making that move unless you believe there's a franchise quarterback out there for you. Yeah, you know, um, I'm skeptical of C.J. Stroud. Um, And the reason why I say that is when you watch Ohio State play, it's like he's almost never under pressure. 
and the wide receivers are always wide open. I just, I don't know, man. Um, you know, I think we've seen that. We saw that with Haskins out of Ohio State. We saw that. that we've seen that in the passing game to some extent with Justin Fields. Now, they're all different players. I think Stroud is a little bit further along in passing game contests, but he's also not the athlete that Justin Fields is. So we'll see. It's a lot to give up for C.J. Stroud, is what I would tell you. I mean, this is not like a guy that um, there's no consensus that says he's the number one guy. So the fact that they would trade all of that for him, well, I don't even know if the teams at like two and four, the Texans or the Colts would even take C.J. Stroud. I think they maybe would have taken Bryce Young and Anthony Richardson. But maybe that's who ends up happening with um, – maybe that's what ends up happening with Carolina. Maybe they end up taking Young and Richardson. They're saying that they haven't decided who they're going to take, so we'll see. Uh, we got Ross Tucker on the line back in the fold with us. A uh, little Bills action yesterday. Josh Allen and Von Miller's contracts were restructured, freeing up around $32 million in salary cap expected, um, not confirmed at this point. Do you think they're looking for a free agent splash, or how do you see them utilizing some money that they freed up? Well, so far they've signed one guy, and it's a guy I know very well, mm. Connor McGovern. Uh, who can play both guard and center. He's a Penn State guy. He's an Eastern PA guy um, from, like, the scranton Wilkesbury area. And uh, I, I love the signing by the Bills because they need to get better in their interior offensive line. He's smart. He's tough. He's strong. I don't know that they have a ton of money to be spending around elsewhere. I, I think they'd probably really like you to de-tackle if they could, especially based on that Bengals game. Uh, so one more piece of news, uh, and then we'll let you go, Ross. Uh, Sam Darnold signed by the San Francisco 49ers, leaving them with an injured Brock Purdy, Trey Lance at the quarterback position. They did grab Javon Hargrave, continue to improve on the defensive side of things, improving maybe the best unit in the entire NFL uh, with another really dominant lineman. But is this ever going to set this, the 49ers up for success? Like, they, we understand the roster is impeccable, and they are really dangerous on both sides of the ball. But if you keep going like replacement level at quarterback, can you ever win a Super Bowl doing that? Um, I think that, well, first of all, I mean, they traded a lot to get Trey Lance. I think they think he's really talented. I don't think they think he's replacement level. And I also think that they probably think that Purdy will only get better in his second year and that they can get both those guys to play at Jimmy G level um, play at worst. I mean, I think Purdy did play at Jimmy G level last year until he got hurt against Philadelphia. Um, I think that might be the most interesting signing of them all so far. I mean, the Niners just took one of the Eagles' best players. I mean, those are the two teams in the NFC Championship game and two of the teams that will be the favorites this year. And the Niners just took one of their best players right away from them. He's a difference-making player. Um and I think Darnold is just kind of security in case there's issues with the health of both Lance and Purdy. I think Kyle Shanahan kind of feels like he can get Darnold to play at a pretty good level, like a Jimmy G level. Yeah, he probably can. That's an interesting quarterback room. I mean, Trey Lance has a lot to prove, obviously. Brock Purdy might be the guy if he's healthy or when he's healthy. And Sam Darnold, yeah, I'm with you. 
Kyle Shanahan probably gets something out of him. I don't know if it's Super Bowl caliber, but maybe between the three of them, uh, they have it. Pleasure talking to you again, Ross. Uh, we appreciate you coming on, and hopefully we can chat again soon. A couple big uh, dates on the NFL calendar approaching, so we'll get you back on. Absolutely, always. Thank you for having me. Uh, that's Ross Tucker, host of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast and an analyst at Westwood Wong One, excuse me, in CBS Sports. Jason Kelsey also announcing that he's going to return for his 13th NFL season. I don't know if you saw how he announced his return. Wasn't he lured back by a keg last year? <laughs> Probably, but... I think Sirianni sent him a keg of beer, and that was like the, okay, I'm back. I saw online today, it was going to be my A-list, actually, but he was ripping shots with Eagles GM after announcing return. Ripping shots as in, like, liquor? No, shots on net. Well, he's got a hockey background. No, ripping shots. Okay, what kind of shots were they? I drinking? don't know. I don't. What's your it. shot? Not, of, what's your I'm shot? I'm not of choice? endorsing um, creatine. What? <laughs> Just kidding, <laughs> Justin. What? I guess tequila. Oh, Same. that's disgusting. Saying Tequila's it at my seven a.m. I mean, just go, just go big or go home, buddy. Tequila is the shot because you get a little, you get the lemon or the lime, and it's just like only uh, lime. That just makes it makes it all better immediately. Creatine. I didn't knew. I didn't know you shooted. Shoot you it? don't. Creatine. Um. Well, we're gonna give you a shot to win Dirk's Bentley tickets. Coming to Bud Stage on June 1st as a part of his Gravel and Gold Tour with special guests Jordan Davis, Molly Tuttle, and Golden Highway. We're giving away tickets all week long. All you have to do is tune in to us here at the Fan Morning Show. Listen for the daily code word. Today's code word is sideways. Great tune. Text sideways to 59590 right now to enter your chance to win for today. We're giving away another pair of tickets tomorrow. So if you don't win with us this week, make sure you secure your tickets by going to Ticketmaster.ca starting Friday at 10 a.m., Dirks Bentley, Bud Stage, June 1st, Sideways, 590-590. Let's take a break. We got Will Lou on the other side, host of the Raptors show. We're going to talk about his upcoming event with blank, important Raptors executive. Who is it? Mm, stay tuned.